Good morning and welcome to fellowship. We have the opportunity to start our service today by praising the giver of every perfect gift, the Father of lights from whom all blessings flow. So would you lift your voice with us as we sing, praise his name. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures Bonjour. <laughs> you weren't expecting that. That is from our friends, our missionary friends from Mali, Africa. They say hello. And also, while we're at it, hola, buenos dias, namaste, shalom, guten tag, konnichiwa, shikamu, Swahili, in case you're curious. And also, Amy, I need help on this last one. Some Arabic. Assalamu alaikum. Yes. All right, there we go. Do you feel welcomed? Okay, globally welcomed. And I just want to say hi. My name is Simon Foster, and I get to be a recovering student pastor here at Fellowship Bible. I mean, wait, recovering. That's it. Yeah, retired. To me, actually. I'm a retired student pastor. I was a student in your ministry. <laughs> I get to be with one of my old students. How cool is that? So fun. But Amy and I get to be here with you, and we want you to know that if you're new here, please, I want you to walk after this service back to the center booth and introduce yourself. If not, you don't want to do that, go online. We want to know you. We want to help you become a part of our church. But here's what I want you to know about that last welcoming that was in Arabic. It means to be, peace be upon you. Isn't that fitting for this morning? Where do we find our peace? We find it in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen? And when I said I was a recovering student pastor, I've been on lots of FSM spring break trips, and I just want you guys to know what they do with your students is incredible. It's amazing, and I know that when you get back from a spring break trip, you're really worn out. I need to know if you've recovered. I have, but Sam Hannon did look me in the eyes a couple weeks ago and say, I need you to take a nap. <laughs> and I said, did okay. You, did you follow the boss's <laughs> And order? I said, absolutely, I'm gonna go take a nap. But I, it was so, so worth it. You can see some pictures behind us, but we took five trips to four different locations across over spring break week, and it was incredible. And I'm just gonna give you a brief update about what God did on those trips. So we took some students to Texas, and the main focus of that trip uh, was on deepening community and on learning about spiritual leadership. That's exactly what students did. And they have come back and they have deeper friendships in their cell groups, and they're also being leaders in their cell groups too. And we also took a team to Denver, Colorado, where we partnered and served with a church plant that is multiplying churches in a postmodern culture. 
And our students came back, and they just were reminded of the basics of ministry, of loving God, of loving others, meeting the needs of others around them, talking with others about Jesus, and they're doing that in their schools. How cool is that now? And we also took two trips to Memphis, and our goal with that one is to get them outside of their comfort zone, have a cross-cultural experience, and learn about service. And those students came back having learned a lot about discipleship and evangelism, and many of them for the first time, asking their cell group leaders, hey, will you disciple me? Because I want to grow my own relationship with Jesus now. So praise God for that. And then the last one, we went to Minnesota and we partnered with an organization called Engage Global. And their whole like, ministry is to teach teams about God's heart for the nations and teach them different world religions and how God wants all people to know him. And last week, some students from that team actually taught their cell group about God's heart for the nations and then challenged everybody to a year-long prayer challenge for all the nations of the world. It's amazing what these Spring Break trips do. So thank you for partnering with us and sending us. I think that's just the beginning of what God's going to do to these Spring Break trips. Mm. But another really near and dear thing to my heart is the Springdale community. I mean, that's, that's my home. And it was hurt by a tornado a few weeks ago. So thank you for partnering with us, for serving the Springdale community and being the hands and feet of Jesus. And there are still needs. So if you're able to or want to give, you can follow the Disaster Relief Fund link. Just use that QR code. And you can give online. And we are going to get those, those, use those funds to get the needs to where they need to go with families who still have needs. So thank you guys again. Thanks, Amy. If today's Palm Sunday, that means next Sunday is the most transformational date in the history of mankind, right? Our lives from death to life. We will celebrate next Sunday, and here's how we will celebrate. Oh, and before, before I tell you the times and everything, will you be thinking, who can I invite? Easter is a time that people are open to coming to church. Who can you invite to taste and see that the Lord is good? Be thinking on that. Here's what you can invite them to. We will have an inside and indoor service here at 9 and 1030, and there is a rumor that there will be a choir. Don't want to miss that. It's a rumor. I think it's a fact. Just wanted to say rumor. Also, other service that we'll have that will be incredibly exciting for Easter, outside at the West Field, 7 a.m. sunrise service. We will also have a family worship service at 9 and 1030, all outside. I've been asked to tell you this, B-Y-O-L-C-C, bring your own lawn chair and coffee out to the West Field to celebrate with us. And not only will we have an incredible Easter Sunday next week, we also will lead you up and prep your heart for Easter Sunday. We have Holy Week devotionals that I know work, and they can be sent to your inbox because I just got one this morning. So sign up for your Holy Week devotionals. You'll get one every day this week to prepare your heart. And then also, we will also have two other incredible opportunities. Friday, Good Friday, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., Stations of Reflection over at the Training Center Chapel. Come here, bring your family, come during work. Just come and reflect and remember Jesus Christ this week. If you didn't think that was enough, to help your confidence in believing that Jesus did live, he died, and he lived again, we also have a class that's coming, and it's called In Defense of the Resurrection. We'd love for you to sign up for that class. Lots of good stuff. It's the week where we talk about the most amazing thing that's happened that's changed all of us. 
This is a week where we need to dig in and feed our hearts for Jesus Christ every day. Let's get prepped for the celebration, which is next Sunday. And to start that, Amy, would you just pray and prep our hearts for this morning? I'd love to. God, you are good and you are faithful. Thank you for this church we can come and gather. And whatever is on our hearts, on our minds, on our souls this morning, may we lay it at your feet, may we lay distractions at your feet in order that we can receive from you this morning. So help us have a more clear picture of you individually, but also as the body of Christ. And may you increase our love for you and our worship of you this morning. You are so good. Thank you that you're here and that you want to be known. So help us to know you more this morning. Say my prayer. Amen. Amen. This morning we have the privilege of surveying the wondrous cross. To survey something means to examine it or to take a good long look at it, to determine its worth. So this morning we ask the question, what does the cross mean for us? What is the worth of the cross of Christ? Today as we sing and as we pray and as the word is taught, as we worship, the answers will be sung, they'll be said, they'll be read. And our prayer is that as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, that we would confess that to him as we prepare our hearts for communion today. So we'll be taking communion at the end of the service, and we will also um, have the prayer room available all morning if you would like someone to pray with today. My prayer is that the empowering presence of Christ would be felt in this place as he sanctifies us and makes us more into the image of his son, of the son Jesus. And so the invitation is here. Would you survey the wondrous cross with us? And would you hear the word of the Lord with all humility and faith today? Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross.
so we pray. Blessed Lord Jesus, before thy cross I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused thee to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. Thy blood is the blood of incarnate God. It's worth infinite, it's value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper. Born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. Sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light? The air supply breath, the earth bear my tread, its fruits nourish me, its creatures subserve my ends. Yet thy compassions yearn over me, Thy heart hastens to my rescue. Thy love endured my curse. Thy mercy bore my deserved stripes. Let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation, bathed in thy blood, tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation. Sing with us as we ask this question together. What can wash away my sin?
continue to sing the gospel together. Incarnate God, worthy of all our praise, we sing. In the darkness, we were waiting without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running. There was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets. To a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to
We are currently in our study of the book of John. And if you, if you want to go ahead and get there, you can turn in your study guide or your Bible to John chapter 10 is where we'll be picking up. We, we're currently studying it through the first section of three sections in our study of the book of John, and we're in the I am statements. And so, so far, we've looked at uh, Jesus said, has said, I am the bread of life. And he said, I am the light of the world. And then last week, Sam took us to, I am the gate or the door. And with each of those statements, not only is Jesus making a metaphor, so he's teaching through, through metaphors, he's the king of context. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But what he's also doing, he's actually connecting himself with that I am statement that God, when he spoke to Moses in the Exodus event, he's connecting to himself. He's saying, I am God. It's an incredibly powerful and paradigm-shifting statement. And today we'll see him say, I am the good shepherd and all that that entails. And so that's our study today. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 10, verse 11. Turn your study guides to John chapter 10, and we are going to get started. Last week, we were given some characteristics of a shepherd. We live in northwest Arkansas. There aren't a lot of shepherds, and so this this helps us. And so we're given some characteristics. The shepherd, um, in verse 2 of chapter 10, is the one that has the right to enter. He's the one that enters correctly. Also, we see that the sheep know his voice. He calls them by name. And the sheep will follow him. And so we pick up our study in verse 11 of John chapter 10. It's where we see Jesus make the, the, the claim. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And in this verse, Jesus basically asks and answers two questions, or he answers two questions for us. Who is the shepherd, and what does the shepherd do? Basically, what he's saying, he's, he's conflicting, or he's contrasting it with, he's not one of the false shepherds, those, those Pharisees, those false prophets from before. He is the good shepherd. Now, that word good there is really important. And what, what it's, it's not saying, and in our, in our culture, the word good, we might say, hey, did you try that new restaurant? And you might say, yeah, it was good. That's not what he's saying here. It's a different kind of good. It's the Greek word kalos or kalos. And, and, and what it means, it means better or right or authentic or genuine. Some theologians even, even say they wish that that word good there was translated as the word true, that Jesus is the true shepherd. And so when he says good, it has a very high-level meaning. It's authentic, genuine, better, the true shepherd. And so what does the true shepherd do? Well, he lays down his life for his sheep. And he'd go on to illustrate that even more in just a minute. But last week, Sam showed us some pictures of of a shepherd at work. And so you see this is a flock, uh, and you see this is the pen. Now, that landscape doesn't look much like northwest Arkansas, does it? Looks a little different. It'd be pretty hard to be a shepherd there. And then you see the shepherd pen. But I want you to think about that because Jesus, in these teachings, he's the king of context. And so he's teaching to people who were either shepherds or they knew a shepherd. How many of you here today are shepherds? Any hands? 
I don't see any. Anybody own sheep? Maybe you don't call yourself, nobody owns sheep. You see, it's hard for us to understand that in modern day Northwest Arkansas, isn't it? So I was thinking this week, okay, so if Jesus came to Northwest Arkansas, he was trying to teach this lesson, he's the king of context, what imagery would he have used? Boom, very good. So he says, I am the good chicken farmer, you are the chickens. Now you're like, wait a minute, chickens smell bad. They're not smart. There's like 20,000 of them in one of those houses. Did you know that? And they run around, and the, the, but the chicken farmer has to take care of them or they don't do well. And I kept thinking, okay, well, chickens might not be a great illustration. What about, oh, what if Jesus said, I am the good trucker, you are the truck? I mean, we live in Northwest Arkansas, largest trucking companies in the world, and you don't like that one, do you? Okay, here's another one. Uh, I am the store manager and you are the associate. What, I am the good store manager and you are the associate. But you see, those would have resonated more with us than this shepherd imagery. But I think you, you'll, you'll start to get this, that, that he's talking to people who know or are shepherds. And Jesus is the king of context when he talks about this idea of being the good shepherd. Moving on to verse 12, he, he contrasts it with this, this other uh, person, the hired hand. He says, the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You see, the shepherd, he owns the sheep. He feeds the sheep. He cares for the sheep. He protects the sheep. He possibly even gives his life up for the sheep. But what does the hired hand do? He's in it because he's getting paid. He has no investment. He does not own the sheep. He's only in it for what he can get out of it. And when the risk outweighs the reward, what does he do? He's gone. And then we're also introduced to this wolf. And the, wolf, the wolf's only job is to still kill and destroy. And the, the hired hand is not the wolf. He, he's, he's trying to do good, but he's not invested like the shepherd. Now you think about this, especially during COVID, you go into a business the last couple of years you can tell the difference between the owner and the hired hand, can't you? We went to eat chili at Wendy's the other day, and I wasn't sure if anyone was alive because they were all hired hands. You see, the owner, he cares. He will lay down his life for that. So we see the, the difference between the shepherd and the hired hand. Now let's look at the sheep. Look at verse 14. Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. So what he says, he's like, okay, here's an identifier. Here's how you can know you're, you're, one of the, you're in the flock, you're in the fold. Here's how you can know you're a sheep, that, that I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. And this word know is another important word. It's, it's not just simply a knowledge of, it's an experiential knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. It's like a, a husband and wife relationship. It's intimate. You really know. And so if you're here today and you're thinking, okay, I know Jesus. No, it's an intimate kind of knowledge. It's a relationship kind of thing. Jesus is saying, I 
am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And then he gives us an example of that. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So the level that the sheep know Jesus is the same kind of illustration, example of how how Jesus and the Father know one another. And you have to understand this, that we have God, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, so the Trinity, and they know each other incredibly well. It's probably the greatest intimate relationship ever created, or wasn't created, I guess, that existed. And he's saying that that our relationship with Jesus is, is somewhat similar to that. It's not a God-like relationship, but it's, it's similar to that. And then he says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now he says something really interesting in verse 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now this is really hard stuff to understand. Um, I've even heard people use this to say there's life on other planets. See? There may be life on other planets. I don't know, but this isn't speaking to that. Now think about it. Jesus is king of context. They're in the first century. What's he talking about here? He's talking about, he's laying the foundation for, he's saying there will be believers outside of this Jewish cultural context. He's laying the foundation for Gentile believers That's you and me. Most of us in this room are Gentile believers. And so he's he's, he's saying there are other pens, but there will be one flock and one shepherd overall. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. There shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now we've heard about the shepherd, the good shepherd, and we've heard about how he's not the hired hand the hired hand's different. We've heard about the sheep. We should be done, right? But he, No, but he goes back to the shepherd. Look at verse 17. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Another hard verse to interpret. It seems here like, like Jesus is saying that the reason the father loves me is because I am willing to lay down my life. And I, I, I I don't think it's that. I think theologians don't think it's that. Matter of fact, if it's anything, it's the opposite of that. It's not a causal statement. What what he's saying here is is the reason that I lay down my life is because my father has lavished love upon me. It's the same thing as the gospel. You see, so often in our human mind, we think, okay, okay, I'm I'm uh, I'm gonna do right. I'm gonna obey God so that I'm approved. And if you're a believer in Christ, that's not true at all. If you're a believer in Christ, you are approved, therefore you should obey. You're not trying to earn anything from God. It's the same thing here that Jesus is approved by God, approved by God the Father, and therefore that motivation is the foundation and it's the fuel for Jesus laying down his life. And then in verse 18, Jesus asserts his authority. He says, No one takes it, my life, from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. You see, Jesus, this is the differentiation of Christianity from most other religions and even cults, is that Jesus is Lord. 
This is the thing when they come, when someone comes to your door and is telling you about their religion and it sounds really similar to yours, you can say, do you believe that Jesus is God? And they most often will say no because they don't agree with you. But here Jesus is saying, I have the authority to, to, to lay down my life, to give it up. I have the authority to resurrect my life. This command I received from the Father. It's because through the Father is laying the foundation for what Jesus is doing. He's, he's the fuel and foundation for what Jesus is doing. And this is where we come to our big idea. Jesus, our true shepherd, has the authority to lay down his life and take it up again. So what do we do with that? How does that impact us today? Let me, let me show you how this shepherd um, metaphor kind of plays itself out throughout the New Testament. Now watch this. Okay, in John chapter 10, verse 11, where we've been today, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd, what? Lays down his life. So he dies for his sheep. But if you fast forward to Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews talks about not the good shepherd, but the great shepherd. And here's what he says. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. You see, in John chapter 10, he's talking about Jesus dying on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 13, he's talking about Jesus rising from the dead, that great shepherd. That's great, amen? That's good news. And then in 1 Peter, Peter talks about the chief shepherd. He plays this metaphor out. He continues it. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In John chapter 10, the good shepherd, he dies for us. In Hebrews 13, the great shepherd, he rises from the dead. And then in John, in 1 Peter, he's talking about this, this chief shepherd who one day will come, return again. And what does he say? He says, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And if you are a believer in Christ, that is incredibly good news. That's what your Savior and Lord does for you. Good Friday, Easter, and someday the return. So what should we do with that? The couple of verses before 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 says this. I think it's really interesting. Peter's speaking to the leaders in the church. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, because you are willing as God wants you to be. Elders, small group leaders, spiritual leaders at fellowship, that's our job. We should be shepherds of the God's flock, just like Jesus has shepherding us, laying down our lives for each other. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful for your word, how it teaches and trains our hearts. Lord, we're so grateful for your son and that we remember today his death on the cross and that, that, may, that his death may be a pattern for us living our lives. May, may, may his love be the fuel that helps us love one another. And Lord, I pray if there's someone in this body, this church body who doesn't know you, I pray today that they would come to know you because of your great love. Lord, as we head into this time of worship, would you move in our hearts and our minds?
Hebrews 5, 8 through 9 says that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. As we reflect on the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, and as we continue to worship through song and through offering, may we worship Jesus, the son of suffering. Perfect Son of God in all his innocence, walking in the dirt for you and me, he knows what living is, he's acquainted with our grief, man of sorrow, son of suffering, blood and how can it be? There's a God who weeps. There's a God who bleeds. Oh, praise the one who would reach for me. Hallelujah to the Son of Suffering. So our distant enemy, but he chases down a merciful pursuit. Do the sinner you a grace in the broken human place. In the end, the proof is in us. We believe.
There's a God who weeps. There's a God who weeps. Oh, praise the one who would reach for me. Hallelujah to the Son of Suffering. Oh, hallelujah to the Son of Suffering. Hallelujah to the Son of Suffering. Oh, praise the Just months after Jesus made the claim, I am the good shepherd, we find Jesus and the disciples at the edge of the city of Jerusalem about to enter what would be the last week of Jesus's life on earth. People often refer to it as the Passion Week. For those in Jesus' day, it was simply called Passover For the Jewish people, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a time to celebrate and remember. Remember when God led their nation out of captivity in Egypt. You might might remember it. It's when they spread the blood of an unblemished lamb on the lentils and the doorpost of the homes and the death angel literally passed over, but not so for Pharaoh and those who didn't believe. And that's when Pharaoh released God's people. And and for 1,500 years, they would celebrate and remember. In Jesus' day, during the Passover celebration, Jerusalem would be filled with people coming to celebrate. When it was evening, Jesus and his disciples, they entered the city, and they navigated the the crowded and narrow streets of Jerusalem and made their way to the place where they would celebrate this, this Passover meal. As they arrived at the house, they entered a large upper room that was prepared by John and Peter, just as Jesus had instructed In the dimly lit room, the disciples, weary from the day, began to sit one by one, and they reclined at the table until all were seated. Possibly still on their minds were these these words that were bothering them from earlier in the day when Jesus said, my time is at hand. With a seriousness in his voice, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. As they are still trying to understand the weight of his words, he tells them that he will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. As they struggled to understand his words, Jesus arose from the table and he took the role of a servant and began to wash the disciples' feet. It was uncomfortable to have their leader and their Lord perform such a humble and menial task to take the role of the house servant. Peter outright refused. 
But Jesus, as he did so many times before, both gently but also firm, assured Peter that it needed to be this way. Jesus poured water into a basin, and one by one, he washed the feet of the twelve, wiping them with a towel from his waist. After washing their feet, Jesus again finds his seat at the table, and the disciples were speechless and visibly moved by what their leader had just done. While they were still struggling to comprehend the weight of what just happened, Jesus instructs the twelve to do for others what he had just done for them. But he goes on to point out that it would be someone in that very room, one of the twelve whose feet he had just washed, that would betray him. They were devastated. When the words finally sunk in, they one by one, they, can't, they kept saying to Jesus, not me, Lord, not me. And when Judas finally spoke up, he said, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus responded to the, with those faithful words, you have said so. As they are eating, Jesus once again gets their attention by breaking a loaf of bread. And he prays and he gives thanks. And he, he gives some to each of them and says this, this is my body which is given for you. And, and after they had eaten, Jesus does something similar with the cup. He, he holds up the cup, and for, with after a long pause for all to see, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And together, he had them drink. And even though they, under, they struggled to understand the magnitude of his message, they knew something was different. Everything was about to change. After dinner, Jesus and the disciples, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's located just outside of Jerusalem with those, those beautiful and magnificent olive trees. It's where we see the human side of Jesus when Scripture says he, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And in that garden, just a short time later, he was betrayed by Judas just as he said it would happen. And after some resistance led by Peter in his own words, he reminds everyone who he truly is. In Matthew 26, he says, Do you think I cannot call upon my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Taken from the garden, Jesus eventually ends up before Caiaphas, the high priest, and his council, where they falsely accuse him. They beat him. They spit in his face. And then the next morning, they took him to Pilate, the governor. And because of his wife's counsel, based upon a dream she had had, Pilate wanted nothing to do with condemning Jesus, so much so that he, he sent Jesus to Herod, only to have Jesus quickly sent back to Pilate. Since it was custom for the governor to release a prisoner during this time of celebration, Pilate brought Jesus and Barabbas before the people. Which one of these do you want me to release, Pilate said. And the people over and over screamed, release Barabbas. We want Barabbas released. Pilate then asked, what do you want me to do with this, this Jesus called Messiah? And they all said, crucify him. Why, Pilate said, what crime has he committed? And they only said it louder, crucify him, crucify him. 
Pilate was so distraught by what was happened, he literally washed his hands before the crowd. And scripture said, the crowd exclaimed, his blood is on us and our children. After the soldiers beat, mocked, and, and put a crown of thorns on Jesus, they led him to Golgotha. As Jesus hung on the cross above his head, they, they placed a charge written against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. At noon, darkness came over the whole land. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After that, Scripture says, Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. At that moment, the earth shook. The rocks split. That, that temple curtain, that majestic temple curtain that was so tall and so thick, ripped from top to bottom. It was so amazing that the soldiers who watched over Jesus saw the earthquake and everything that took place, and Scripture says they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's Celebration Sunday. But before there can be celebration, we need to remember before Easter comes Good Friday, and before resurrection comes death, and before celebration comes sacrifice. So in just a few minutes, we're gonna end our service. We're gonna to come to the table and remember. But for the next few minutes, we want you to ask God to prepare your heart. During this time of worship, take some time to confess your sin to God, and then breathe in that forgiveness. And make this next week, this Passion Week, a week of thanking God for who he is, and what he has done, because he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep.
Demon.